You are listening to the message by Antioch Centre for the Nations. For more information, please visit www.antiochcenterforthenations.org. Thank you. Praise God. I'm so excited to be able to be together with you, share God's word. Early this morning, I rose excited. I love Sunday mornings. You know, to be real honest, uh, last year, I, I was getting a little, it, Sunday was hard. It was really difficult, and uh, it took a lot of energy and strength for me to get up and, and, and work and do the messages. And I did it because we're faithful in season and out of season. But something's breaking. Uh, as we've been fasting... I've been through 24 days of fasting thus far and, and what the Lord told me to do. And with every time that I do it, there's a greater freedom. Something's changing and opening on the inside. And so I'm excited about uh, the work of the Spirit in me, but I'm excited about the work of the Spirit in you. And so the title of our message is Transformation by Spirit. Uh, we're going to have later after this message, we're going to do the Lord's Supper and, and, and break bread in that moment. I don't know if we're quite ready to do that right now, but I want us to go straight into the word. Second Corinthians chapter three, first the title of the message, let's put it back up, uh, transformation by spirit. Let me tell you a little bit of background about how this came about. I was meditating on the, the Mount of Transfiguration and what took place on the top of the mountain with Jesus and his disciples, and something caught my eye, and that's whenever you read the word of God, if something catches your eye, pay close attention, because it means God's trying to tell you something. And what caught my eye was the phrase, six days later. And I started thinking, why does it specifically say six days later he took them on the mountain? And the Lord spoke to me by his spirit, and he says, back up and see why? So I went back and researched exactly the conversation that was held leading up to the choice of Jesus to take those three guys up on that mountain to witness this amazing display of his glory. And the Lord said, within that you will find the keys on how to find your place in transformation, how to find your place in a unique position with God to be able to undergo a metamorphosis or a change by the glory of God. And so we're going to get into that in a minute, but in, in introduction I want to read 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. How many, how many of you are glad he's taken the veil away? Now he should. There is a veil. And the veil that's being mentioned in this passage, of course, is speaking about the veil that Moses wore upon his face. And the reason that Moses had this on his face is because uh, the Moses and the mountain, when he had that experience, the people not being enlightened and not understand what was going on were frightened by the effect of the glory of God on Moses so they couldn't handle it. And it was so extreme that Moses had to put a, a veil over his face because he was seeing God in such a way that no one else could. Now, 
In actuality, God wanted that same relationship with everyone. God wanted that relationship with the Israelites, but remember, historically, they were afraid of God. And as a result, they said, no, we will not go up on the mountain to meet with God. Instead, you be our liaison, you be our mediator, and you speak for us. In essence, they rejected the fullness of the power of God. God's original plan was, he said, bring all the elders, bring the leaders to the mountain, and I will come down and meet with them. And they actually had at least one meal where God came and manifested. But it was so awesome and so overwhelming and so frightening to them that they said, no, you alone, Moses. So Moses got the lion's share of glory, got to see God while he hid him in the cleft of the rock. And as a result, his face glowed. And so this veil was there. Now it's talking about this issue as an analogy in 2 Corinthians of our relationship with God. And that's why it says, whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now, the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, everybody say all. That means everybody in this room. That means everybody that believes in Christ is eligible for what we're reading. Because Paul says, we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So we have a relationship with the Spirit of the Lord. The phrase here where it says, turning to the Lord, whoever turns to the Lord, in, in context of this passage, we know this is a reference of the fact that God's people did not turn him, but turned away from him. In fact, they had a lot of issues like this. Remember that Hebrews talks about there's a rest that remains. That rest is a place where God's people are eligible to go to, provided they go through the blood of Jesus. So the sacrifice where Jesus died for us makes us able to go into the fullness of God. That rest is remaining for us if we are not hard-hearted, the Bible says. If we are not stiff-necked, it says as they were in the day of provocation, meaning the Israelites. And I thank God that we've had their history to learn from. We watched them wander in the wilderness for 40 years. We know what they went through and their suffering based upon the fact that they could not accept a full relationship with God. But we today have been given the opportunity through the dispensation of grace, through the dispensation of the Holy Spirit since the days of John the Baptist, that we can take these things by force we can go and enjoy these things and be transformed. And that's what the scripture is speaking about. So the Spirit of the Lord has the ability to liberate the human mind and heart and therefore allow us to have the veil removed so that we can truly and spiritually contemplate the Lord's glory. And that word there for contemplate, where it says contemplate the Lord's, this means to reflect as in a mirror. And another translation, it says to, to look into the mirror. And what it means is that when we have an encounter with God, when we go into his presence, we're looking into the eternities. And what he projects back to us is an image of what he expects us to become. In basics, he's showing us the future of ourself. That's what we call our vision, our purpose. We begin, the, the more encounters we have with God, the more we 
choose to remove the veil, the more we begin to look into the mirror of eternity and see the reflection of ourselves, but not as we are right now, but as we will be in eternity. And we'll be perfect then. I know we have a lot of issues right now, but we will be perfect then. And honestly, there are a lot of people who are part of the society that surrounds Christ here on earth that have not yet entered and experienced the fullness of his spirit. And it is for that reason that I breathe. It is for that reason that I'm alive. God put me on planet earth to help his people fix this issue. It's the only reason I'm alive. And some people say, well, you know, my ministry is teaching or their ministry is evangelism. Their ministry is this, ministry is that. I, I don't really know exactly what my ministry is other than what I'm telling you. It is my job to bring people into an encounter with God. It's my job to bring people into the Holy of Holies so they can know him in the way that he's taught me, the way that he's brought me. And I've had experiences that equip me to be able to describe and express things that I've seen, that I've tasted of like this, as the veil has been taken away. I do not believe in elitism of the anointing. There's some preachers that will preach that if you are very special, if you are perfect, or there's a sovereign call on your life, God will bring you into a deep relationship, or God will lift you up to that place. It has nothing to do with sovereignty. It has nothing to do with elitism or how special you are. It has everything to do with your own personal choice. Because he's made it able for us. He's opened the door for all of us. The problem is that the, the human mind and heart in and of itself can't do this. And when we are very mental, we're not going to be able to do this. You know, Romans chapter 8 verse 5 says, those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the spirit have their minds set on what the spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. So we see the need to transition into the realm of the spirit. And it's very important, and I know this is not easy. This means, as we're looking into this mirror of God's glory, contemplating his glory, that contemplation or time spent in that presence causes a reformation of our being, a transformation. And that's exactly where this word is that's used in this passage. It's a word in the Greek that's only used two times in the entirety of the scripture, and it is the word for metamorphosis. Like the changing of a caterpillar into a beautiful butterfly. That the Lord takes us into the chrysalis of his power. And we emerge differently. We emerge changed by these experiences. And that's exactly what his plan has always been. So our goal is to be made into the image and the likeness of God according to the original plan. You know that was his original plan. He made man in his image and his likeness. And at first we're made physical and out of the dirt of the earth, organic matter or material is brought together. That's he made man from the dirt, it says. That's why when we die, the physical container just becomes dirt again. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. They say it at the funerals when someone dies. But the new birth, 
that Nicodemus was told about is a reformation of us, a changing of us in spirit that makes us able to relate to God in spirit. Because the people that he's looking to worship him are those that will worship in spirit and the truth because God is spirit. God is not a physical being that we can touch and, and feel in a physical realm, but yet we can touch and feel him in a spiritual realm. It just so happens that the spiritual realm transcends or has effects into the natural realm, like the wind on the wheat. You can see the wind because you see what it does. So it is with the Spirit of God. And through the years, I've seen him do amazing things that were invisible, but yet it changed lives forever. Many times I felt the spirit of life, life uh, moving and flowing in groups and churches and I've had a word of knowledge or I felt this impression to say if you're out there and God is speaking to you and you believe that you have a ministry I want to pray for you and through the years I've done that and as a result hundreds of people have been changed in the, the cauldron or the forging fire of a manifestation of the spirit and absolutely transformed. To where when they left that meeting, they could not possibly do anything other than become ministry. God called them in that very moment and all the time all over the earth. I hear people say, you remember that time? That's when everything began. That's when everything changed. Brother, you came and preached at our church. And you know, the funny thing is I almost never remember. Because while it's happening, I'm, I'm usually pretty much a basket case. I'm a lot like the young woman in the back. I just, I can't breathe, I'm crying. And in that moment, God is God and does what God wants to do in spite of us. We have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the glory would not be for us. It's always the credit goes to him. So this process of transformation is necessary for us all to be enlightened and taste of the good word of God, the powers of the, you know that passage in Hebrews 6 Second part of verse 4 and verse 5, it says, Those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age. Which means that our current age does not in and of itself possess the powers that are list, listed and are available in eternity, but we are able, when we go through this process, we are able to access those powers according to this. If we go through this enlightenment, and I believe it is the obligation of every individual believer to make it their life's goal to seek that enlightenment and to not take anything else in its place. Because once you've been enlightened, once you taste this, there's no going back. It's crossing a line that you can never return from. And most people study this passage about the, 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 the Mount of Transfiguration. They study this story from a perspective of the, of the now six days later, and they just talk about the mountain. And in actuality, the message I'm sharing with you tonight, which will be seven steps to transformation, this message does not spend a lot of time on the actual transfiguration. Because what I want to focus on is what happens before and after the transfiguration. Because all of us can come in and have a touch and go through something and cry, but then what? What's the process? What's the purpose of it? Why are we going through this? And so seven steps to this transformation, because the transformation isn't about us feeling an emotional moment, but about our lives being indelibly marked and truly changed for him. True revival, the fruit of true revival is a changed life. Not an emotional person, 
but a changed life. And I know that's what happened to me. And I know that God has used me to minister that out for many years to many people in many nations because they all need that. We all need that kind of experience to authenticate the presence and the power of God because if it becomes real to us, it will be real through us. Then we receive power so that we can be that witness and we can manifest that. So we begin here looking at this story. Seven steps to transformation. Step number one, make the choice. You have a choice to make. Now, this is Mark chapter 8, verse 34. And we're going to take from three different gospels that all account of this, the surrounding time around uh, the Mount of Transfiguration. And as we look at it, we're going to piece them together in a mosaic, kind of like what we do on Journey with Jesus. We take all the passages. I do it for this message so we can see it all. It says, we read God's word, Mark 8, 34. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel, we'll save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? Now, as I speak about making the choice, we see the beginning of this story. It says he called the crowd to him along with his disciples. Notice that it specifically mentions two groups. There are a few places in the Bible that it says this, that his disciples and the crowd in the same sentence. Whenever that is mentioned in scriptures, if you go look, there is a reason why, and it's showing you the divisions between classes. Not so that you would feel ostracized sitting in economy when you see people in first class, but that you can understand that if you employ or do what one group does, you also can have those same advantages. And this is what he starts off by saying. And the question here is, what do we want to gain? So Jesus is laying out options for life here. Anyone who would come after Jesus and anyone who wanted to gain the whole world were contrasted by their choices. He's talking about two groups. Because remember, he has disciples and he has a crowd. What was the crowd there for? Very often the crowd was there just to see signs and wonders. Jesus was constantly criticizing the crowd. Because you won't believe unless you see signs and wonders. Because people will come not even really believing in Jesus. They just want to see a show. I think there are a lot of churches putting on a beautiful show these days. I can go on YouTube and see some beautiful shows and be moved by the lights and the smoke and the, and the, and the flashes and the, and the beautiful bands. I think it's a great thing. But there's a lot more to our spiritual life than a presentation. And I know that many people can go into such beautiful environments and walk away never having been truly changed, just entertained. And that's what the crowds are, entertained. The disciples decided to follow Jesus. Now, most others, they were being entertained by these teachings and, of course, the miracles, the demonstrations of the power. But from this perspective, some were more focused on life and the future of self, and some were more focused on the kingdom of God. So this was a perfect precursor to what we're going to be doing in Cameron Highlands. I was thinking, okay, then we need to set ourselves, we need to make a choice, 
and face what we want to accomplish even by going to Cameron Highlands. What are we going to do up there? Just have some good food and party and have a great time? No, we're going there to seek the kingdom. And it's a very serious endeavor, and it will take place. We will do it. Of course, we'll have fun. We'll have fellowship. We'll enjoy our time together because Jesus and his disciples had a ball. They had a wonderful time together. So we'll have a wonderful time together, but their objective never waned. They always had one purpose and one idea, and their goal was unity in seeking God's kingdom. And this is what Jesus is talking about in the beginning of this conversation, saying, if you're going to come after me, if you're going to seek me, if you're coming to get me, then fine, you're going to take up your cross and follow me. It's not going to be easy. There's some work that you're going to have to do, some sacrifices that you're going to have to make. Because after all, anybody that wants to save their life for themselves will lose it. But if you give your life up over to me, you'll gain life. We know that as we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, all things are given to us. God's not looking to rip us off. God's not looking to take away from us. He's looking to give us more. But that more comes through this alliance and when we make these choices to seek God with all of our hearts. So transformation requires our choice before all else. We have to make a decision. I made this decision when I was 17 years old. And to be totally honest, I did not really come into the fullness of what God had for me in an understanding and in a real transformation until 10 years later. It wasn't until 1995. In 1984, I received Jesus Christ as my personal Savior. In 1984, I received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Wonderful experience. And a minister by the name of Lester Summerall was teaching. And Lester Summerall was the man who spent long times with Smith Wigglesworth. And Smith Wigglesworth laid hands on him to impart the anointing of his ministry. And he said to him, as he looked in his eyes, he looked in Lester's eyes and said, I see it. He says, you see what? He says, I see great revival. He says, I see it in your eyes. He saw in that eternal place in praying for Lester Summerall, he saw the future that Lester, just as a boy or young man there in his early 20s, had no idea. But later on, he went on to cause great revival to the Philippines. There was a missionary statesman there that did miracles, and thousands of churches were born out of a movement that that one man brought because of the miraculous. Smith Wigglesworth saw it from his living room years and years before. There's a goal, and it says Lester shared that story. And then he said, if there's anybody here that wants the baptism of the Holy Spirit, raise their hand. I, as a 17-year-old boy, raised my hands, and I received the Spirit of God. And the first thing I did was make this choice, that I am going to follow God. I'll do anything I want with these ministers have. Everybody that came with the anointing, everybody that had an association, a connection, or an intimacy with God, I drooled over it. I said, I have to have that. I want that intimacy, that closeness. We make that choice. What's the contrast? I make a choice for something else. Or maybe I just decide, you know, I'm not really that interested in that. I'd rather just kind of live my life and just kind of, you know, stay in an even keel. That was never me. Make the choice. Step two, focus on the goal. He keeps talking. He says, for the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what he has done. In the same conversation, 
in Luke, it says 9.26, If anyone is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. So these two passages, both of them are from the same conversation leading up to the Mount of Transfiguration. And it shows us here that Jesus is expecting a certain focus. He will reward each person. How do we focus? Well, we know that there's a reward. Nobody just does something without understanding that there's a reward. And I'm telling you, there's a great reward when we make this choice and focus on the goal of going up on that Mount of Transfiguration, of going where maybe no one else has gone before. Maybe we're going to break out into another realm. Maybe we're going to find a new place in Christ, a new place in the Spirit. If anyone is ashamed of me, he said. So are we ashamed of the glory of God? Are we ashamed when we break down and have no control over our emotions? Is it embarrassing? Like the woman with the alabaster box? That Simon was ashamed at her behavior and the way that she related to Jesus? Of course, Jesus said, leave her alone. Like Judas was upset that she broke that box only because he wanted the money because it was a year's salary represented in that box. There are a lot of reasons why people will be ashamed of the manifestation of God in their lives. Sometimes we are so, so, so wanting to be pure in our presentation, in our decorum of life, in our prestige that we wouldn't want to be so embarrassed as to have those experiences. That's not focus. That's focus on self. And Jesus is talking about this contextually. Step three, I say make the team. Mark 8, 38, it says, and he said to them, I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come with power. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. Now, I put these together in context because this is exactly how it takes place. In another passage, it says when he said this, that some thought that John would never die. But that's not he, what he was referring to. Because when you look at it in context, he meant literally some of you people in this group of the crowd and the disciples, a few of you are going to be able to partake in an amazing thing. And you will personally witness the coming of the kingdom of God, not in the sweet by and by on a celestial shore, but right here on earth, here and now. Have an experience, have a vision that changes you. Forever. He said, some of you standing here. Some who are standing here, he said, will not taste death before they see the kingdom. In other words, they don't have to die to be able to see the kingdom. They don't have to die so that then they move on into the heavenly realms. You can sit in the heavenly places now. And that's why immediately it says, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John. Why Peter, James, and John? What made them so special? How did they make the team? Why didn't all 12 make it? It's a good question. So we see that the disciples were together in a mass group. They're all hearing the same words, but not everyone made the mountain team. Just three. Now these same three happen to be 
pretty popular with Jesus and were often also in elite positions to witness and see things that nobody else got to see, like the raising of Jairus' daughter from the dead and special places in the time of the garden when Jesus was in his most stressful moment before his betrayal and praying in great anguish. He took Peter, James, and John with him away from the rest to use them as a support team close to him. That means he was intimate with them in a way that he was not with others. So the question is, how do we gain that intimacy? How do we get on the inside? We look at outside versus inside. Matthew 13, 10 says the disciples came to him and asked, Why do you speak to the people in parables? He replied, Because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Well, that doesn't seem very fair, does it? Why would God be selective and give this knowledge, this experience, this gnosko in the Greek, this knowing personally, these things and other people not have those secrets. I, for one, am enraged to ever think that I'll be on the outside. And ever since I was first born again at the age of 17, I made a determination and a focus, and I've been driven with the idea that I am not going to be cut out of this. I am not going to be on the outside. I'm going to be on the inside because God is no respecter of persons. And we all have an equal shot at it, an equal opportunity. So I'm going to do, come hell or high water, I'm going to do whatever has to be done to get on this team. That's my determination. It always has been, still is. He said, because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. He says, whoever has will be given more. In other words, the more knowledge you have, the more you will get. With every acquisition of knowledge from God, every spiritual revelation, if you take that, you use it properly, allow it to disseminate itself inside of you, to become uh, the, the germane presence of God that causes life to grow out of you by publication. If we've seen all these messages about how we take the word, we multiply it and we speak out. Whoever has will be given more and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have even what they have will be taken from them. This is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing but not understanding. You will be ever seeing but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they were closed, or they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and hear. For truly, I tell you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. We know the passage says, many called, few chosen. How do you make the team? Well, first, you show up for the tryouts. The thing is, if you show up for the tryouts, if you even make yourself available to God, he's going to use you. He's going to show you. How do we get chosen to go up on the mountain? How do I make the mountain climbing team? Well, by the things that you see these people had. They were on the inside. How do we get on the inside? Basically, think about how much time they spent with Jesus. 
how much time they spent listening, learning, growing, developing, being corrected. A lot of people don't like correction. But Jesus continuously, every single day, was reprimanding them and correcting them and correcting them and correcting them and redirecting them and telling them they were foolish and they were slow to heart. And how long do I have to be with you people? That could be really offensive. If you have any issue of pride in your heart at all, you wouldn't be able to remain in the ministry of Jesus. But if you're like the Syrophoenician woman and you don't mind being called a dog, then you just might get what you've come for. Takes a lot of humility to make the team. Takes a lot of desire to make that team. And it's up to all of us. We make that choice. And then finally, you're on the team, which is a good thing. Chapter 4, behold the glory of God. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And he did not know what he was saying, it says. He did not know what to say, it says in Mark. They were so frightened. Because it's true. They experienced amazing things. They're beholding the glory of God. They're seeing a display nobody ever witnessed experiencing uh, the depths and the power of God's glory to such an extent that they are absolutely overwhelmed, petrified, terrified. I don't know about you, but I sure want to have an encounter that terrifies me. A lot of people are afraid of that, just like the Israelites were afraid to go up on that mountain because they were terrified. And they said, no, let's just leave that to the elite. Let's leave that to Moses. And if that's what you want, that's what you get. Not me. I don't even want God to be gentle with me. I've told the Lord, in dealing with me, Father, use a chainsaw. Don't hold back. Whatever it takes to bring me to the place of understanding, to open my eyes, to cause my heart to be receptive, do it. And I know what I'm saying, what I'm saying. I'm inviting suffering. I'm inviting persecution. I'm inviting tribulation. Nobody in their right mind would invite that. If it means that I can have intimacy with him by enduring that, then bring it on. Because that's how much I want to be close to the Lord. And I behold his glory. And when I do, it is overwhelming. In 1995, again, that happened to me. It was so overwhelming. It was so staggering. I was blind for 45 minutes when the glory came upon me. And I was dumbfounded. I didn't know what to do. I had pulled over on the side of the road in my car where I convulsed for 45 minutes under the glory of God and only saw white light. When my vision started to return, I saw things very differently. I was transformed by beholding the glory of God. Of course they were afraid. Of course they tried to do silly things that, that made no difference. I like Jesus' response to them wanting to put up these little tents for people to stay the night in. He doesn't even answer them. He totally ignores them. 
Because he's thinking, and he said, that is just so stinking silly. Why would these heavenly men that have already transcended into the eternities need a tent? Come on. But he didn't say that. He didn't want to spoil the moment. He just left it alone. Leave them in their ignorance. Because they didn't know what to say. They were, they were so frightened, it says in Mark. They didn't know what to say. They couldn't make heads or tails of what was going on. Often you feel that way when you have an encounter with God. You don't know what's going on and you're petrified. This morning, I'm telling you, this morning I had an encounter with God whew, that I've not had in a long time. I thought I might die. I thought I might die. I felt like I was going to blow my eyeballs out. I felt like I was going to bleed from the orifices of my body. So much pressure came over me. And it, and it was when I was watching a YouTube video of Lester Summerall testifying about his encounter with Smith Wigglesworth and the hands that were laid on him. Because when I was listening to the testimony, I remembered Lester Summerall laid hands on me. And I relived that moment. It's like I was standing in that living room with Smith Wigglesworth and he was putting his hands on me. Because the anointing does not wane or change if it's passed through a thousand vessels. It stays pure and perfect. So I placed a demand on it this morning by myself, staring at a computer screen, and said, well, what he got, I want, and boy, I got it. And I was afraid. I was afraid I was going to rip something on my insides. And that's the way I like God to deal with me. Because after, I'm left with such an assurance of the reality of God that when I sit with an atheist for hours and hours and hours and talk with them, he is absolutely uh, not a threat to me. It's too late. Way, way too late. Because once they've been enlightened, once they've tasted of the good word of God, have become participants with the Holy Spirit and the powers of the world to come, this life has nothing that can change your mind. That's the value of enlightenment. That's why we all need this. Because before that happens, you're still kind of questioning and wondering. So we keep seeking. Step number five. Hear the voice of God. While he was still speaking, you say, well, who's speaking here? Well, that's, that's not Peter. Well, you know what? We'll put some tents up for you. And, you, you know, you guys can stay in these little tents. And while he's still saying this, a bright cloud enveloped them, and a voice came from the cloud as if the father was trying to set Peter straight about his silliness. This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him and shut up. Stop giving your ideas about what you want. Just listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground terrified. If they weren't already afraid. A cloud comes over them and says, would you guys just shut up and listen to him? It's my son. Ah, they fall on their faces. But Jesus came and touched them. Some, I heard it preached this way, that why did he touch them? Because they died. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. I think if God came to me and said, this is my son, I'd, I would think I would die. I'd probably have a coronary and just pass out face down and die. I don't know if you would feel that, but I think I would. So Jesus had to raise them for the dead. <laughs> and he came and touched them. Get up. 
Same Greek words that he says to Jairus' daughter, that he says to the, the, the widow's son of Nain, that every dead person, this is what he says, get up. Don't be afraid. When they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. Because Jesus, like, after he seed them, saw them die, he's like, okay, you guys get out of here. They can't handle this. Thank you, Father. I get it, but I got this. Then he went and raised them so he could give them some sense. But they heard the voice of God. We cannot hear his voice without a transformation. Isaiah had the angel bring live coals from the altar of God and burn his lips. Ezekiel had the same experience. Also needed the coals to burn them. There has to be a purging sanctification of spirit that transitions us into a place that we can become able to hear what God is speaking. And, you know, it, it, it messes with you, of course. You have an encounter that changes you. In 1995, after that experience I had, it took me 12 hours to drive home because it was a 12-hour drive. Not, you know, it took me longer from the point I was at in Ocotlan, Mexico. After that encounter, when I came to, I drove the rest of the way. In the entire trip, all I could do was mumble, I love you, Jesus, I love you, Jesus. 12 hours. I was like the child that's been spanked and his lips going in and out. I cried for 12 hours like that. I could not stop. Could not stop because I couldn't believe that I was counted worthy to experience his glory in that way. And all the way home, that's all I did was think him. And it was half crying, half laughing. Half the time I was crying, crying. Then I would just start into hysterical laughter as the joy of the Lord consumed me. That whole drive home. In the camp, I'm going to share in detail that entire testimony. Just feel like I need to share every little detail, walk you through that experience. Because upon hearing it, you can become a part. You become what you behold. You can then place a demand on God to do the same thing. If God has put you in a relationship with me as a mentor, that makes you 100% eligible for anything I have ever experienced. Anything I've ever been through is 100% yours. Like Caleb. Caleb's got it. We sat at the Disapola home and, and Caleb just kind of shared his heart and bam, the glory of God was there. It was beautiful. Anybody, you can have that experience. It just takes some time. Sometimes it takes decades for some. But we keep, we keep pushing forward until we find it. It's the treasure hid in the field. It's the pearl of great price. It's the widow's coin. It's the lost sheep. Everything that the Bible teaches us, it's something that has to be gone after. It's something that you have to insist upon getting. Shameless audacity is required to hear his voice and really encounter him. Just don't give up. Step number six. Working our way to the end. Live changed by the glory. That's your sixth step. As they were coming down the mountain. Now, this means that the show is over. They worked their way up to that place from what we've seen. Now, they're coming down the mountain. What do you do after the service where you've been touched by God? What do you do after the Cameron Island, Highlands retreat when we go there and you may end up in the glory of God? My prayer is that everyone be completely filled with God's power and that they be brought up into the heavens and see visions and God willing, that's exactly what all will experience. I know I will experience. I don't, I'm not going to wait for you. I'm sorry. I'm going in and I'm going in deep. You're welcome to come. 
And in that moment, what do we do after? Riding back on that bus. That's coming down the mountain. Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. You understand that Jesus revealed something to them that was so amazing that if they went and blabbed it around the community, they could have had him executed prematurely. He would have certainly been branded as a freak and as a demon. They already were calling him the one that was casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub. Jesus knew, look, this is, the world can't handle this. That's why I separated you three and brought you up on a mountain, so keep your mouth shut. There are experiences. Paul said in the euphoric experience of spirit, he said, I know a man that was caught up to the third heaven, heard things that are not lawful, one translation says, not lawful to speak. One translation says that it cannot be uttered with human words. He heard things in the heavenly realms, experiences that he had. These guys have had a similar experience. And the Lord's saying, look, just keep your mouth shut about this. And they kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And it's interesting that they were having this discussion because beforehand, Jesus had already told them in a different occasion that the Son of Man would be handed over and crucified. And remember the first time Peter objected, not so, Lord, he said, get behind me, Satan. Another time that they were just afraid and didn't say anything. Now he brings it up again that this is going to happen. And now they're ready for it for the first time to intelligently discuss it. Why was this different? Why could they now have this? Because they had been changed by that experience. So the ultimate goal was not experiencing the power of God on that mountain, but living their life in a new way, from a new perspective. Keeping the matter to themselves, they now were changed in perspective, perception, and paradigm, like we recently saw, by the events that they witnessed and what they felt. You know they had to feel special about it. And you know the others were unhappy with it. When they came down with the, you know, that Cheshire cat grin on their face. What happened, guys? Uh, I can't tell you. Oh, that would drive me crazy. What happened? Dude. Can't, no. It, but couldn't even tell them. Why can't you tell us? He, he, he told us we can't tell you. How mad would you be? I had somebody that comes to uh, the regular services on Journey with Jesus. And this, of course, yesterday we had you know, Spirit of the Lord manifested pretty strongly and quite a few people were touched during that time. And this person had been coming to get that but missed yesterday. So I saw them this morning and I said, I got some bad news. What? Yesterday it was on. He walked in the room, you weren't here. She was like, Ugh. I said, it's okay, it's not too late. Just make sure you put yourself in a position to be able to take advantage of when God moves and God does what he does. Live changed by the glory of God. The ultimate goal is this. Think about bathing. This is the analogy the Lord gave me this morning in prayer. The ultimate goal in bathing is not the actual bath, but the state of hygiene you live in after. You don't bathe for the bath. You don't spend three, well, some people do spend three hours in there, but you, you know, you enjoy it, yes, but why? Just for the sake, you're not a fish. You want to be clean, so after you're fresh and you will stay clean, some people wait for an entire 24-hour period before they do it again. Some people do it more often, depends on how sweaty you get, at least it is in my case. 
To be real honest, when I lived in super cold environments, sometimes I went three days without a bath. You think, yeah, let me put you where you have no heating and it's minus four and five and you, the last thing you want to do is disrobe. You don't care what you smell like. You just, you just want to stay warm. But bathing, the goal is not the actual bath, but the hygiene you enjoy. You live until needing another bath. So just like being clean allows you to avoid certain negative effects, i.e. bacteria, germs, so being transformed in heart and mind by the Spirit allows you to live life from a different point of view. It's a spiritual hygiene that takes place when you've been washed in the water of God. You have that experience, and later on, things that used to be able to affect you or touch you, bacteria and germs of spiritual realms, they can't touch you because you've been cleansed. That's the enlightenment. In 1995, yeah, I was changed. Did everything change? Did my situation around me change? Actually, no, nothing changed. There was no different in the moment that I was touched by God. What changed from my experience was my view. What changed was how I saw things after that encounter and every subsequent encounter. The, the encounter this morning, after it finished, I sat there and I stared at the wall. And thoughts were rushing in my mind about just, just about what does that mean. And like you start seeing everything different when you have these experiences. That's the metamorphosis that it's talking about in the introductory passage that we saw. We're being changed from glory to glory as we contemplate, looking with an unveiled face into the glory of God. It changes everything. The disciples will never be able to see things the same way again. They know now that this is possible. Now they're ready for big boy subjects like death. Discussing what rising from the dead meant. Let's talk about this thing that once bothered us. Now I think I understand where he's going with this. They were ready for it. The experience changed them supernaturally, influencing their minds by exposure to the supernatural qualities of God. When we have these encounters with the supernatural, we change the way we see everything. It alters our view of life and death, thereby causing us to make different decisions to choose different paths for our lives. That's why when I go and I've done meetings through the years in different places, the glory of God comes upon people in a way that they were not expecting. And then after that, they, it's easy when I say, how many of you want to make a commitment today to do something for God? And they run up because they see everything differently. They feel like I better take advantage of this. So many ministries have been birthed that way. Step number seven. Gain understanding of spirit and grow. The disciples asked him, Why then did the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? And Jesus replied, To be sure, Elijah comes and will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but have done to him everything they wished. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. How did they know this? Where every time before this, they did not. The disciples understood what Jesus is saying here without him having to explain it this time. This is the first time they get it first time. 
Even though it's an analogy, even it's something hard to explain or hard to understand, they got it. So before this moment, they had, Jesus had to explain everything to them, but now this means that they gained a different understanding or discernment. They no longer needed the explanation. When I meet people, ministers, preachers, teachers, I, the ones that have had deep encounters with God and I know that they've experienced things in the spirit, we have conversations without talking, honestly. We can, we can just look at each other and communicate things. It's feelings. Kayla knows what I'm talking about. We do it often together. We just get it in that moment. And we slide over into a place where we're, there's a, it's like our spirits are communicating. That's a discernment. That's an enlightenment that God wants for all of us. The reference there, of course, uh, to the spirit and power of Elijah that was on John, that means the anointing that John carried was the anointing that was formerly on Elijah. He didn't need the anointing. You don't need the anointing in heaven. <laughs> his name is written on you. You don't need his essence or his power put upon you. The anointing is useless in heaven. Why would you need it? You're in the very presence of God. The anointing is to operate on earth. So when Elijah left, what did he do? He left it. And the symbol of his mantle falling to the ground from the fiery chariot that Elisha picked up. And then later Elisha was thrown into a tomb and that man was thrown on top of Elisha and the power of God raised that dead man from death by touching the bones of Elisha. The anointing continued to travel through the generations because it's an eternal presence, the eternal gifting of God. That's what happened. They were on a mountain. They saw Elijah. But they saw the heavenly Elijah that didn't need that anointing because John the Baptist had, but John the Baptist was beheaded in prison. What happened to the anointing after that? I don't know. I'm sure it's not dead because it's eternal. It'll never end. It's moving around somewhere on earth. I would love to have the, the spirit and the power of Elijah upon me. Of course, now if I have that, it means I'm going to get my head cut off, so I'm not in a big hurry to volunteer. God, give me what you want to give me. Transformation by spirit, seven things we've seen here. Make the choice. It's a decision, it's a determination. Focus on the goal. What is your goal? Your goal is to live in the kingdom. Your goal is to fulfill the purposes of the Father. Your goal is not to gain a wonderful life with everything you could ever want or need or desire, but to have that in, 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 in an addition. It's like an annex to the fact that you're fulfilling the purposes of the Father. Make the team. You want to be in the elite group? Well, many are called. Few are chosen. Show up. I was talking to another minister once. It's easy to talk about to ministers about church services and attendance in church services. I say, I don't understand why people don't go to every single service there is. I know that's pretty biased because I'm the pastor and I would like to see everybody in the church all the time. And there's very valid reasons why they cannot. But honestly, I never settled for those reasons. I was in every single service. Every single service. I make jokes and I'm not kidding. I was in the women's services. It was women's only meetings, and I was there. Sat in the back, pretending like I was working, but I didn't want to miss anything. I was loitering around the children's church and in the nurseries in case somebody was saying something spiritual. I was in every single auspice of the ministry in our church for those first few years, everywhere, all the time. And I got in a lot of trouble. I lost jobs. 
because I failed to show up on construction sites because the service was going on. And they gave me ultimatums and said, you don't show up on this construction site, you can't work here. And I said, well, then I'm not working here. And walked away and went to church, lost my job, then didn't have money as a result. And people quoted the scripture to me, if a man doesn't work, he shouldn't eat. And I said, I'd rather not eat and go to church. They said, you hard-headed. People get so mad at me. Because I was hard-headed. But my determination was not for the things of this life. It was for the kingdom. I've always been in love with the kingdom. Make the choice. Focus on the goal. Make the team. What if that service that I missed is the one where the team was formed? What if there's the moment Jesus turns and says, Peter, James, Stephen. Where's Stephen? Oh, he's not here today. Okay, well then, Andrew. Ah, and I hear that later. He called for you. You weren't here. No. And I can't tell you how many times I was hiding in the back of churches and prophets that came to visit said, there's a young man here. He's like Elisha to Elijah. Uh, I think uh, is, is you have someone here under your ministry that works for you. And the pastor was like, oh, you're talking about Stephen. And everybody turned around and said, Stephen, they're calling you again. And I got so many words of prophecy, so many hands laid on me. because, I, And I knew if that service I had missed, oh, I would have missed the opportunity. And it would have been an important component of my amalgam of ministry gifts that I need to do what God's called me to do. And I'm still collecting these things as I did this morning from two dead men. Lest the summer on Smith Wigglesworth. I received the glory of God. Why? How can you do that? Because that doesn't exist in time. It's timeless. It's eternal. Make the team. Behold the glory of God. We're going to see a display. We're going to see amazing things. But believe me, even that encounter is a means to an end. That you be changed. You hear the voice of God. It's terrifying. Live changed by the glory. Gain understanding of spirit and grow. Jesus. This is exactly what the Lord told me to share. And I'm praying and hoping that it is a blessing to you.